This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. What is our relationship to the Korean War and to the affinities of different institutions that produce knowledges about the Korean War? In her book, Warring Genealogies, Joe Kim, quote, conceptualizes racialized formations of kinship emerging from the Korean War as a problem of knowledge, end quote. Through a close reading of Chicanx and Asian American cultural productions, as well as archives produced by white penitentiary, Prisoners and the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Jewel considers how Chicanx and Korean diasporic works critique white supremacist expressions of kinship that emerge from the official memorialization about the war. Further challenging the division and disciplines and periodization in academia that forecloses discussions about colonialism spanning multiple geographic locations and temporalities, Chuk examines how queer hermeneutics help us to reconsider minor and humble instances of kinship between Asian Latino cultural productions. I'm pleased to welcome Juok today at the New Books Network in Asian American Studies to talk about her new work, Warring Genealogies, Race, Kinship, and the Korean War. Juok, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I loved how you positioned yourself and your story in the coda to contextualize the production of your book as Imagining Otherwise. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? Oh, thank you for that question. Um, I'm an associate professor of cultural studies in the Department of Literature at UC San Diego. And that's actually where the um, work for my book started. Um, Warring Genealogies is based on the dissertation I wrote for my PhD here in literature at UCSD. Um, but as you read in the coda, I grew up in um the, the state that is known as Kansas, which shaped my book in a number of ways. Um, so, for instance, some of the content is explicitly located in Kansas, such as the uh, first chapter on proxy adoption by Leavenworth Penitentiary prisoners. And as you've read in the coda, um, my physical like closeness to um, archives and their collections also informed this book really in ways that I I couldn't have been in, I couldn't have anticipated when I first started this project mm-hmm. yeah 
Um, I really, yeah, I found it so interesting, like how, you know, location is really important for you, uh, you know, spatiality, like both you as a researcher and an author, but then also for the characters that you engage with in the fiction as well. Um, I also wanted to ask you about the reading practice that guides your book, um, inspired by Jose, Jose Esteban Munoz, uh, that you call a queer hermeneutic. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate this question. Um, the, the book hinges on the tensions generated um, between knowing and unknowing, um, the tensions generated between remembering and forgetting, and how, like all the different ways we might arrive at our understandings and relationships to the Korean War. And one of the things I find so rich about Munoz's queer hermeneutic um, is how it opens up, and these are his words, quote, uh, epistemologically and ontologically humble, end quote, um, reading practice. And it's so generative. So at the broadest level, this reading practice critiques the accrual of usable knowledge against racialized enemies of the state. Um, So this might be most literally represented by by the analysis of Rolando Hinoza's Korean love songs in in chapter two, where um, Sunny Ruiz sort of passes as Japanese. Um, But the reading practice also invites multiple iterations of the speculative. And so, for instance, like the not knowing for sure what happened to family members who never returned from the war. Um, And that's an especially pronounced thematic in the Chicano literatures um, in chapter two. But within the context of the war, I think that this reading practice reflects um, the number of queer temporalities that refuse to anticipate closure and, you know, like really unexpectedly mirroring the unended status of, of the Korean War itself. Mm, yeah yeah and I also found it really moving when you reflected on how yeah in the Korean War as well like a lot of people like you know don't know what happened to their parents and you know like they were uh, separated and um you know the war has still not ended and you know this like not knowing and like not having closure in any way really still shapes you know the afterlives of the war um so I yeah, really appreciated, you know, how you brought the conversations in Latinx studies with the Korean War um, through queer hermeneutics as well. Um, so in the first chapter, yeah, I guess we'll go into the second chapter to uh, which you uh, have alluded to. Um, but yeah, this not knowing is really important as you begin with an upside down letter. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, how you came across this upside down letter um, and how, how this inspired your chapter? Absolutely. So, oh my gosh, that letter. Um, the letter is, it was reprinted in um, a, a prison um, magazine called The New Era. And it's, um, it's a publication that, you know, it has... It, 
it's had its very like interesting um, histories, both uh, radical and and reactionary. Um, and the Korean War moment is definitely one of the new eras. Um, you know, more uh, how shall I say? Um, it it reads like a like a prison periodical published during the McCarthy era. But that letter is, um, it's a reprint of a letter from a sponsorship agency on um, the adoption, the, the proxy adoption, so not, not physical, but the proxy adoption of a Korean boy by the prisoners of Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. And it's it's reprinted upside down. Um, you know, I think most... Um, like the most plausible explanation is that um, the the people, the inmate or the prisoners who are working on the um, on the new era and its printing presses just didn't really know how to read Korean, um, and that's like the most you know like immediate and um, immediate reason for that. But I also think that the the reprinted letter on its own does so much work for for people who do read in Korean, right? You look at it and you're just automatically like, wait, this is upside down. And in addition to just the top, you know, this the content of the letter itself, I thought, like what what might open up if we take the upside down letter like a little bit more seriously? Um, how might it create different windows for perceiving the war, for undoing how we might think about kinship with, you know, all of its complexities, and engaging with the materiality of the printed text, like how might that reframe our perspective? So like just, you know, physically, like depending on like where you're standing in relation to to the text. And while I don't state this in the book, um, it's the English at the bottom that really gives away that it's misprinted. Um, in other words, the very relationship between like our like ocular consump- consumption of, of both languages is how we know that, you know, one is quote unquote upside down and the other one is not. And I've actually wondered sometimes like how it would like how it would be presented and experienced in Braille, like how that reading experience might be kind of unique as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It was it was really interesting your analysis and how you also tie this to you know kinship as well. Um, how this like upside down letter and like the context of production and then oh uh, you know the prisoners you know like claim to kinship. Uh, it's all connected. Um, when we think about you know the white supremacist mode of um kinship, um. Can you tell us a little bit more about, yeah, like how you think of proxy kinship? Yes. And um, actually, I wonder if I might like kind of answer the question um, in relation to chapter two as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, because they're yes. intricately connected. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I especially like um in the in the short stories that I unfortunately don't get to elaborate upon a little bit more um in in the book but um the so in chapter 2 the the short stories um at the very end of the chapter are uh, Tomas Rivera's The Portrait and 
Rosetta Sanchez's One Morning, 1952. And this kind of has a relationship to, again, like, um, a, a kind of maybe, um, like, unanticipated, like, uh, linguistic manifestations of like white supremacy maybe so um i i in the in the book i analyze only the english versions of both stories um and you know sanchez's short story one morning 1952 um like i can discuss like a little bit more but you know as the chapter and, and again it's a story that i wish i had um i was able to elaborate upon more but as it stands, I, I focus closely on just a few lines. Um, one of a, one of which um, is that the narrators, and this is a quote from from the short story. The narrators quote: "Brother-in-law was out there, somehow caught up in that mess of Chinese, Koreans, and Gringos." End quote. And while I don't discuss this in the chapter, I I wish I had. I think it's really fascinating that the word that gringos remain untranslated from Spanish to English. So the retention of gringos alongside Chinese and Koreans defamiliarizes whiteness. Um, in the very same sentence that situates the narrator's kinship relation to, um, to the family member in the war, which is his brother-in-law. And maybe this isn't like, necessarily an example of how the the story refuses white supremacist modes of forming kinship but i do think that there's something in the like derogatory matter of fact use of gringos in relation to you know chinese and koreans that refuses or denies any elevation of whiteness and that really makes whiteness out of place in the korean civil war and so again, like those are those are maybe two examples that um, I don't flesh out in the book that begin to sort of gesture towards um, like kinship and and proxy kinship and proxy war. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then in on a related note, yeah, you also discuss how, you know, the Latino writers talk about Asia as a proxy place of kinship um so thinking about how race also acquires you know like different meanings like uh, depending on you know where you're located um as you already talked about um i wondered if you could like tell us like a little bit more about it then like how the latino writers like you know like situate themselves um and how you know then the kinship then like takes on a different me- meaning depending on where they are situated in relations to one another. Yes. So um, I think it's a little bit more explicit in um, chapter three with Mar- Martin Limon's novels, um, Slicky Boys and The Wandering Ghost, um, in which the, the narrator is, um, and, and the protagonist of the entire series um, he identifies so strongly with Korea, um, and he does so in a way that suggests, um, like, how he's kind of sick of the um, structures of power in the U.S., um, how, you know, he's been able to um, navigate feeling at home in Korea much 
better um, than in East LA. And for the, um, for Inosa's Korean love songs in particular, um, it's, it's almost as though the characters each offer different theorizations about the like importation of different forms of like racism, which they've been accustomed to in Texas um, in in a completely different physical context. So one is um, Korea, of course, but the other is um, is in Japan. And so I think those um, and and in Japan, there's also the possibility of just um, again, seeking an, an, an option to stay rather than to return to, um, you know, a, an explicit and manifestly like racist Texas. Um, and so, you know, there are those elements. And then some of the other authors, too, um, like uh, like in Luis Valdez's At the Very End of Zoot Suit or um, for, for Rosada Sanchez and for Tomas Rivera, a lot of the... Um, a lot of the tension revolves again around um, unknowing and not knowing and um, never, you know, just never getting any sense of um, closure about their loved ones. And one of the um, one of the lines that you know still um, gives me chills in um, Sanchez's short story, um, "One Morning, 1952," is this meditation about the war. And how um, oh, I wish I could remember exactly the quote, but it, it, it states something like the, it seemed like the war was going on forever. And I think too about the, um, you know, the the fact that it was when Sanchez wrote the story, um, but that it's for us to be in this moment um, with the war still unended, um, it gives, again, those cultural productions a specific um, specific political valence and maybe an urgency mm. as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think this um, relates really well to uh, the other question that I had um, because, yeah, that quote, you know, about how the war, you know, is going on forever and like how it is unended, you know, also make me think about the post-colonial, post-imperial aspect of the war where, you know, with the development of the cities, you know, it's also intricately tied to like the militaristic development that spans, you know, the US and Korea, which you explicitly talk about in chapter three when you talk about militarized histories bringing together East LA, Itaewon and Dongducheon and how Chicano writers actually, um, you know, explicitly like draw comparisons between like Texas and Korea about how hot it is um, but then also like alluding to you know these like bigger histories that actually you know bring together the histories of urban development together uh, which was really interesting um, when we think about spatial proximities um, so I uh, I wanted to ask you about yeah what for you, you know, what are the political implications of these spatial proximities when we think about, you know, uh, 
the politics today, you know, like the anti-war activism that is happening, um, you know, whether, yeah, like how do these stories in a way like shed new insights to, uh, you know, the solidarities that can emerge um, uh, about, you know, when we think about spatial proximity? Oh, that's such a fantastic question. Um, so, I think the political implications of spatial proximities include thinking more critically about the concurrent militarized development of spaces and places. Um, and you know, while this is in the context of the Korean War, I I imagine that um, you know that this this has been true and continues to be so for um, other forever or unended wars. Um, but for instance, um, the infrastructural development of Southern California's um, really inextricably bound up, among other things, with uh, both World War II and the Korean War. And this is, of course, like on top of um, the the settling of California. So with both settler colonialism, the erasure of um, and the attempted erasure of um, indigenous communities, um, you know, in Southern California, um, as well as um the, the U.S.-Mexico War and all of the kind of historical tensions. So, you know, in addition to that, the the more, um, I guess, the, the sort of like World War II, Korean War era development of Southern California and its infrastructures um, has a really explicit relationship to both like militarized, um, to the uh, militarization um, that was part of like why Southern California looks and feels as it does. Um, And although, um, you know, these aren't exactly commensurate examples when I think about how um, all of the, like many of these texts taken together suggest like both like, um, and, and again, each in their own different contexts, sex work and coerced sexual violence across um, East LA, across Itaewon, Dongducheon, um, and other sites. Um, that they place the place the significance of um, the potential for something like um, and something you know, which is also an ongoing anti-colonial feminist solidarity. Um, that it places them both in. A broader geo-historical scope, and maybe, in in you know, in a really optimistic sense, perhaps brings them closer together as well in a kind of shared political intimacy and commitment. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that was what I was thinking of as well, you know, like, especially when we think about um, the movement, um, you know, like activism to uh, remember the comfort women histories and uh, to, you know, like, uh, demand retribution that is 
quite transnational, like uh, quite a transnational movement that is happening um, across Asia and America. Um, so yeah, I, I uh, thought, you know, this is like all related, you know, like the histories of development, but then, uh, you know, bringing like gender into the discussion and uh, thinking about the transnational solidarity movement. Um, and um, this actually, yeah, this also really relates to another question that I wanted to ask you. Um, and I thought, you know, when you were analyzing Old Friends, the story Old Friends in Chapter 2, um, I thought it was quite fascinating when Rafe disidentified with Pinkerton, um, who has an affair with a Japanese sex worker, because, you know, one of the... Um, like contentious issue with uh, comfort women and sex worker is, you know, the history of uh, Japan colonizing Korea. Um, so there is this like national division. But then I guess scholars have also pointed out that, you know, like Japanese women were also, you know, um, comfort women too. And then um, um, I, I don't think there is much work, you know, on like the solidarity between like Korean and Japanese women because of, you know, the nationalist frameworks that often, you know, frame these discussions. But I thought that that moment was a, yeah, quite a fascinating moment to consider inter-Asia relations, um, you know, with uh, taking into account the colonial history. So I was wondering whether you can tell us more about, you know, like how you conceptualize this relations, factoring, you know, the complex histories of colonization that happened within Asia? Oh, this is such an important question and like such a difficult one. Um, I, I guess maybe it depends on um, like how inter-Asia is defined. So like for, like, I'm just like always thinking like, so for instance, um, if we think about the Republic of Korea and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, like would, would that be considered inter-Asia? Um, and of course, yeah, as you as you state, the, like the prehistory of Japanese colonization of Korea is so critical to the emergence of, of the war and the um, kind of like suspended um, decolonization of Korea. Um, but it's it's not a topic that I'm really um, am super knowledgeable about, or that I discuss in the book, um, unless they're somehow like initiated by the texts I examine. So, like one small example uh, that comes to mind is in chapter one, um, one of the prisoners writes about like China and the Philippines in relation to communism um, or like the Japanese as a threat to the U.S. Um, discounting like Japanese American, you know, participation in the military in World War II or um, to go back to Sanchez's short story, like a discussion of Chinese, Koreans and gringos, which I thought was a really interesting um, racial framing of the war through like this unnamed uh, Chicano character. Um but to respond to maybe the heart of your question, um, I can maybe share another example. So how might we, and as you ask, like, how might we reflect upon possible solidarities between Korean and Japanese women, um, especially in the context of different forms of institutionalized sex work and coerced sex or um, sexual slavery? And I'm not sure, too, whether or not, um, you know, my, my understanding is that there has not been um, much scholarship uh, access, at least in English for myself, um, that I'm familiar with. But in, 
in the coda of the book, I mention um, the personal effects of a member of the U.S. Air Force um, Mosquito Squad. Um, and some of these personal effects included like sexually suggestive black and white photos of white military personnel um, taken with Asian women, which I suspect were taken in Japan during R&R. And while I'm unsure of like the specifically inter-Asia implications, when I encountered these photos in the archive, I definitely wondered about like broader anti-colonial solidarities between Korean and Japanese women, like together against both like colonialism and the misogyny and the violence of patriarchy that attends colonialism. And, you know, like, because even as like the Japanese military institutionalized sexual slavery, like throughout Asia, right, like Philippines and um, like what was then called, I believe, the Dutch um, East Indies and, and, and different parts of China and Japan as well. Um, even though, even because even as the Japanese military institutionalized sexual slavery, like throughout Asia during and throughout the World War II era, I cannot imagine that there would not have been like people and women in particular in Japan who opposed both colonialism and sexual violence, right? Like there must have been. And um, I personally, you know, it's it's not that I'm privy to these histories, but um, I, I would love to learn more about, you know, however kind of um, minor their, their actions or contributions may appear. Um, for me, it's really important to not foreclose that as a really important part of like anti-colonial feminist um, historical record. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then I think um, this question also came to my mind, because it's something that I have been thinking about. So I was really curious to hear your thoughts. And yeah, I think that in terms of like historically looking at solidarities, like, yeah, like, I don't think there's much work, even though uh, I think now like transnationally, I think there's definitely more like instances of solidarities. But I think as you were saying, yeah, I think I would also like love to see, uh, you know, like the everyday solidarities mm-hmm. that emerge. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. I love the way you phrase that. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I really do hope um if if the scholarship exists, I'd I'd love to learn learn more and study more. And if it doesn't, I can't yeah. wait for, for yeah. the work that will come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I I thought that you know like also the way you discuss kinship was also just like such a beautiful way of like expressing you know like I I mean as you show like kinship can also be you know like a white you know um supremacist way of establishing dominance but kinship can also be you know a way of like rethinking and can be an instance of everyday solidarity too uh so i also thought that um yeah all of these questions actually interrelate uh in one way or the other yeah uh, so i yeah i think i also really appreciated your theorization of kinship as well um with 
uh, you know, that respect to like thinking about like um, the possible, you know, the possibilities of uh, relationalities that emerge in the everyday settings and uh, people encountering one another. Um, I wanted to uh, shift gear into my next question. And um, in chapter four, um, you think more about like kind of like quote unquote like official archives with the United Daughters of Confederates. Uh, so first I wanted to like ask you more about this archive to contextualize it for the for the audience. Yes. Um, so um, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, I mean, the United Daughters of the Confederates, like they really um, did a lot of uh, mobilization and um, just in the most kind of uh, like non, um, how do I, like the most neutral version of this word, um, activism in order to get statues um, dedicated to like the memory of the Confederacy in order to build like libraries and collections that argued for like um, the Southern lost cause. And, you know, they're, they're still um, active and um, they, you know, they've awarded medals for different um, U S military campaigns, but like honoring again, like the um, Confederate, like, um, oh, what's that word? I'm blinking right now. But, um, oh, lineal, like lineal descendants of the of the Confederates. And so they're... Um, their work in shaping the physical space of the U.S. South with, like, all the the memorials and, um, you know, the naming of, like, or creating um, archives and just sort of keeping the Confederacy, um, quote-unquote, alive is, like, it's huge. They just really did, like, a lot of... Um, they expended tremendous um, effort in shaping like the white supremacist like physical landscape of of the U.S. South, um, uh, and not exclusively the South, but especially in the South. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because um, it really, you know, like I, yeah, I thought that like uh, just like contextualizing this work was like so important in uh, terms of like thinking about like knowledge production, uh, which is like very integral to uh, this book. And actually, like uh, on a related note, because you know it is like really important to your book. Um, I also wanted to ask you about, um, you know, how you were thinking about the periodization in academia and also the division and discipline, especially when we think about like East Asian studies and, uh, you know, how you're like intervening in this, you know, disciplinary uh, creation. Um, I, I guess maybe this is in some ways related to the question about like um, inter-Asia relationships um, that, that uh, that nothing that we study um, necessarily has to be studied in the in the disciplines that um, that they dwell in or that that currently exist. And sometimes, you know, I wonder, like, actually, how has um, how has like the formation of academic disciplines? You know, so on the one hand, like there are area studies that are, that had just really explicit ties to, um, 
U.S. like power and um, that has everything to do with like, you know, post 45 um, U.S. like reach across the globe. Um, but on the other hand, I, I'm also curious, like what happens when we do, we, you know, what happens when we might take um, like something like the Korean War um, really seriously as uh, within the context of something like Chicano studies. Um, and as well, you know, when I think about like Korean American or Asian American studies, I, I'm also thinking there's no way to really study this history without um, learning more about, um, again, both longer histories and, you know, why not study them in relation to each other? Like, what might that open up? And so that's that's one way of um, of answering the question. But yeah, there's just uh, so much um, fascinating um, research out there about how what we now come to understand as area studies was really a, a U.S. Cold War um, that was engineered on purpose and that it was uh, um, it was disciplining ways of thinking um, that was specifically like it was engineered by design. Yeah, yeah, and then it like forecloses. So, so the, in in a way, like this knowledge production itself, like really forecloses relations, and you know, like alternative forms of knowledge that can actually uh pop up if we you know like don't think in terms of like these like disciplinary divisions. And yeah, I really appreciated that discussion as um someone uh, who is situated in you know like east asian studies and like gender studies but and also like asian american studies and i guess was also like navigating that field as well you know yeah i'm (laughs) really excited to see where you where you take you know how you'll innovate all of all of these um existing ways of knowing Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's like something that I I'll think about a lot, too. So I think um, seeing, you know, like your books, like important intervention into this uh, was also just like really helpful for me in thinking about like what I would also like to do with my scholarship as well. So, yeah, I wanted to um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. And um, on a related note, so in chapter four, um, you t- talk about the United Daughters of Confederacy archives, and then you show how Susan Choi's novel, Foreign Student, disrupts the um, homogenized historical narrative. Um, yeah, and I wanted to ask you about yeah, Susan Choi's novel, uh, whether you can contextualize that, and then how um, you know the novel disrupts the um, homogenized historical narratives. Oh, I, I really like this question, especially because oh, I, there's like um, a lot of the history behind the foreign student is actually not part of the book. Um, and you know, this, it, it ends up being like really biographical. And so a lot of, um, a lot of what I know about um, Choi's novel and how she came to write it um, is from an interview she gave um, from a, a site called Negative Space. Um, but 
Chung, so her father was a Korean immigrant, and her mother um, was first generation Russian Jewish American, and. The origin story for the foreign student, which was her first novel, it's based on her father's experiences, like during and after the Korean War and his emigration to the United States, like himself as a foreign student. And uh, while Cho's father, Choi's fathers did not disclose, like to her, like to Susan Choi, like much of his encounters with the war. Um, she's like stated that he used to have nightmares or night terrors that would like wake her up um, because, you know, it was just so like he just had all these um, like vivid memories um, that would surface while he was sleeping and learn just trying to find out more about his history was um, like a catalyst for for the novel and as for like how this novel about the Korean War ended up in like the U.S. South, like it is some of it is like pretty biographical. So her own father, just like um, Ching An, the protagonist of the novel, arrived from arrived in the U.S. from Seoul in 1955 to attend the University of the South at Suwannee, and. The reason he went to school there was because he, like, just wrote to colleges and universities. Um, until one of them wrote back and offered him a scholarship, and that was the University of the South. But in addition to thinking through like the U.S. South as a prominent setting for the novel, um, there's a question of like colonial genealogies as well, because Choi's grandfather was a prominent intellectual during um, like the World War II post-war um, period, and he actually like enjoyed a degree of success, and so. There were some questions about whether or not Choi's grandfather was um, was a collaborator with the Japanese colonial regime, and it's like, you know, in in this interview, she stated that she's unsure whether um, yeah, that it's like an open question. Um, so I've always been struck by the impacts of Choi's father not wanting to discuss his past in Korea, and finding that despite his conscious like waking reluctance to talk about the war, the war nonetheless emerges through his night terrors um, and his sleeping unconscious self ends up betraying his desire to forget the war, even as the Korean wars, you know, paradoxically remembered um, as the forgotten war, at least in the West. And so I think that's one of the um, kind of like historical disruptions that, um, the novel presents um and there are other instances as well like um the the moment in the novel where you know Cheng's in front of this you know he he gives lectures about korea in front of episcopalian um, audiences um like that's how he um gets his like you know his scholarship and i i'm always struck by his um because his audiences don't know anything about Korea, how he kind of ends up uh, like manipulating um, slides and putting them kind of out of historical order um, to to you know like to share a version of Korea and Korean history and the history of the war um, and to sort of like deliberately pervert that history, like on purpose, um, again, as an example of, of the text, um, 
kind of working against homogenized historical narratives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found it to be so fascinating and like relatable as well because growing up, um, so I attended public schools in Canada, and I just remember feeling really struck by you know like we were like learning about the Korean War, and then my history teacher actually represented it as like you know like I mean maybe like obviously you know like uh, the U.S. like you know saving Korea you know and like um how you know it's like uh, just like the continuation of you know um the allies you know like the saving the world the U.S. you know also saving Korea from like um you know the evil power of like communism and uh, I just remember thinking um you know I was like a high schooler at the time and I you know like even from like very little I knew and just like from having conversations with my like grandparents and like my parents like I just knew that was just not true you know um uh, so I think like you know like reading you know your chapter on foreign student because I haven't actually read foreign student like I was also just like thinking about these like instances of discrepancies in my own education um and I I didn't personally disrupt anything but just how in my (laughs) head yeah (laughs) I wish I could (laughs) I I I see your work for New Books Network as the the best kind uh, of political disrupt- disruption. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hope that, you know, like at this podcast that, you know, will also like reach a lot of people too. And that, you know, as a form of public scholarship, um, that, you know, this will engage with uh, the audience who, you know, may have had similar experiences because I, I imagine that this is actually quite a, uh, you know, like a lot of um, Asian Americans probably have like similar experience and also uh, Asians in Canada as well, you know, mm-hmm, with this representation mm-hmm. of history. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to actually now move on to the final um, New Books Network question. Um, so it's the, um, so the final traditional MBN question is what is the next project you're working on? Oh my gosh. Um, the <laughs> next project I'm working on in, um, it, it would be like the next research project um, is, is a book loosely about North Korean print culture. Um, and I, I, it's still like in Kuwait, it's still coming together. And so like the time period and the um, pieces of print culture themselves, they're kind of always shifting as well as the um, the kind of like um, geographical sites that I wanted to examine through North Korean print culture. Um, and so that's the um, next research project Um but it's you know it's in development, um, and the um, collaborative project I'm working on is um, it's a three year um, Mellon grant at UC San Diego called Speculative Environmental Futures, and um, we're really going to kind of kick off that project um, starting this fall quarter, actually. But it is about like the primacy of of literature for thinking through, um, 
you know, what the speculative allows us to um, imagine and and build um, for for the for um, contending with um, the climate crises and the um, questions around environmental degradation and environmental justice. And so, you know, there's like two kind of like one more um, immediate public facing project with um, with an end date. And then the, the first, which is a, you know, um, again, like in process, early stages thinking about uh, North Korean print culture. Oh, both projects sound super amazing. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to, you know, see your works coming out of it, uh, coming out of these two projects that are going on. Yeah, I feel like speculative fiction, too, is also just like always so fascinating because it is like imagining otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that and also learning more about print culture in North Korea because yeah, I don't know that much about it. So it's, oh, it's going to be right. exciting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, by design. Design, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're meant to not yeah. know about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm really looking forward to you know seeing your future works through these projects. <laughs> Thank you, and yeah. I'm really like excited for your research too, and um... I can't wait to see where it goes. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you so much for, you know, being in conversation with me today and for sharing, you know, your thoughts and your incredible work uh, with, the, with the audience today. Thank you.